Well, it's so good to continue our study of First Timothy. We are in chapter 3. We spent two weeks talking about the biblical perspective of elders, an elder-ruled church being biblical, and the plurality of elders. But now we get to the text itself, and we're going to talk about the qualifications. Now, the first thing I want to say is that Really, the theme that I've given Timothy this year, 1 Timothy, is fighting the good fight in the church. I didn't know we had a cheer. What is it? Turn to the left, turn to the right, fight, fight, fight. Okay, okay there you go. I'll, I'll have to get that down. Or maybe it's good we are looking at the qualifications of elders. I just I appreciate our men that have been elected as elders who love the Lord, men of wisdom, men of godly character. Well, we do come to this section then that talks about the qualifications of elders, and I will be honest with you, there is a bit of fear and trepidation there. Uh, when we realize none of us are perfect, and you look at these, there would be things that we would have to work on, to be honest with you. But at the same time, we think of these in a big sense that there are certain things that we cannot violate, cannot be true of us in order to remain elders. We're not going to get through a lot uh, because one of these is one that I think we have to talk about in detail, and that is the one of the husband of one wife. There are a number of interpretations and I want to try to explain and give a proper interpretation of that. But before we begin, would you look with me at 1 Timothy chapter 3? And we're just going to cover part of verse 2, but verse 1 and verse 2. It says, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. And why don't I just go down and read all of them? Not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I, I thank you for your holiness and your righteousness. Father, that must be reciprocated for every Christian, but especially those who would lead and teach. Father, we ask that you give us not only an understanding of this, Lord, but you give us 
full experience of it in our lives as we love you and serve you, Lord, and we grow in that. But Lord, I would also remind all of us here today that many of these exhortations are not just for the elders, but are repeated in the scriptures for all believers. We all are to have a good testimony. We all are to live godly lives. We all are to be respectable, uh, respectable uh, to those outside and to those inside the church. Father, give us your grace through the Holy Spirit. Teach us even today, and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, as you know, and as I said, we studied for two weeks the biblical pattern of elders and elders ruling and plurality of elders. And we've looked at a lot of biblical references to show that as a Bible church, that's the right direction to go. But another argument for the fact of elder rule, if you will, is the fact of all of these qualifications. If, if there wasn't such a thing in the early church as elder rule, there would be no reason for all of these comprehensive qualifications. But there are. And so this is really the bottom line. And I will say, of all the things that's in Paul's mind, giving to Timothy how to conduct the church, he's very concerned about the qualifications of elders. He's very concerned about our spiritual lives. When we talked about elders in the Old Testament, they were from the family, a tribe, usually an older man, a gray beard. An older man, although you can have a gray beard and not be old. I just want everyone to know that, okay? But that was the Old Testament. If it was an older man, it was assumed that he had wisdom. He was a patriarch, and therefore he ought to have the rule. But in the New Testament, it's not age at all, nor is it status, nor is it wealth, nor is it education, but it is spirituality, and that's what these qualifications teach us. This is what we all must be, but especially if we are leaders as elders and deacons. Now, turn to verse 1, and it's very interesting. I've called this the introduction, but it's a very educational introduction. He's introducing the idea of overseers and elders, which is the same office. But one of the things that he writes, uh, and, and you see this particularly in uh, the Greek, both in verse 1 and verse 2, particularly verse 2. Notice what you would in verse 2. An overseer then must. This is of necessity. This isn't just a good idea. This is a must. It's, and the word there uh, day is the Greek word. It, it means it's very, very necessary. This word is used in the New Testament at times to show it's very necessary. The reason is, is because the testimony of the Lord does come not only individually, but through the church, through a church's testimony. And so the, the elder's testimony is the backbone of the testimony of the church. Also is a good example for everyone else in the church. It's also the idea of the leadership and direction of the church. So even though I've talked about elder rule, 
the election of elder rule is also in your hands and your responsibility. As the elders deem it biblically wise to make sure you have a confirmation vote. And so it's partly your responsibility to make sure that those who are in there have these qualifications as well. Not just, you know, a good friend or doing someone a favor or, or anything like that. Now, as I mentioned, as I mentioned, and I will mention these from time to time, when we go through these, these are for the elders, make no mistake. So, so uh, you know, in, in a sense, it could just be us elders here. But it's more than that. In, in many of these exhortations, I'm going to look at the scriptures where it's talking to all believers in general. Many of these are yours as well. So it, it behooves us to learn these. Now, in verse 1, it begins with, it is a trustworthy statement. And he's going to talk about the elders, of course. But it is interesting, this trustworthy statement. It means that it is a faithful statement. It's a reliable statement. It's a dependable statement. This seems to be uh, maybe a cliche or an axiom that was in the early church or could have been an axiom by Paul in his teaching. This is mentioned five times, the word trustworthy. This is a trustworthy statement. Five times in First and Second Timothy. And several times it is in relation to doctrine. It's a, like First Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But it's not only doctrinal to which he adds, among whom I am foremost of all. So it's doctrinal and practical. He said, "Well, where did, how, do, how do we know it's a doc, How do we know it's a trustworthy statement?" Well, the very fact that an apostle is quoting it, and this is scripture, we know that it's a trustworthy statement because. He is inspired of the Lord, and so it's deemed trustworthy, and it's true. So when you look at those five trustworthies, they're all true, but especially this one in regard to elders. Now, let's move on. He says, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, let's stop at the word man. So we've said that in our constitution, and we said because it's biblical that only men can be elders and only a man can be a pastor. Here in the NASB, it says as much. Now, if you're looking at it in the Greek, to be very honest with you, in the Greek, it could have been translated if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. But you always, always, always look at the context. Because you go to verse 2, and verse 2 says, he must be the husband of one wife. Therefore, when the NASB translates this man, it's very contextual. It's very right. And by the way, can I say gender matters? Can I say that gender is biblical? Can I say that gender is expressed in the Bible, yea, particularly in the Greek. And 
we, we don't want a problem. I don't ever want the women to think that this means you're secondary. This doesn't even mean to think that you couldn't do a better job. <clears throat> but we want to follow God's, God's rules. We want to follow God's direction and instruction. And you remember, before we got into chapter 3, we were in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, verse 12, it says, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet. And we spent some time looking at this. And again, <clears throat> it in no way means that women are second rate and that women can teach. They can teach other women. Women can teach children and they do a great job at it. And it's one of those things, well, yeah, if, if, I, if no one here was here to do it, yes, I would do it. But I'm so glad because I, I, I think they're more gifted at that. But quickly, look at verse 13. Paul does not argue from culture because that's the first thing everybody cries out. Well, that's that was their culture. That's not our culture. We can have women elders. We can have women pastors. But not if you want to be a Bible church. It says, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. God could have created Eve first. Then she would have been in the leadership position. God could have created them both at the same time. And it would have been equal leadership and authority. But he created Adam first. Specifically, it was his design. And it is not to say that Eve is less. And when it comes to, when it comes to one's spiritual life, we are equal. A woman trusts Christ the same way that a man does. In fact, there are many times when women are more spiritual than men. Hence, maybe this is why it's given that men should be qualified for leadership. So when we look at chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, if any man aspires, it is, it is a good translation. Now, what does it mean when he says, if any man aspires to the office of overseer? Um, so I would say what it doesn't mean is that when you come into the church, you start campaigning to be an elder. I actually had that happen sometime in the ministry. Person was interviewing me for membership, their membership. And that was one of the questions that wherever I've been, I've been an elder, I've been in leadership. So I want to know. That if I can come into this church, if I can be an elder. And I said, well, it's a possibility. I said, number one, you have to meet all the qualifications. And also, too, part of those qualifications is to let's wait and see. Let's wait and see how you act. So it's a possibility. But I, it, it does kind of rub you the wrong way. That's not what this means. Uh, I will say that we had... We had another fellow many, many years ago. Uh, his last name was Morgan, Mr. Morgan. And he didn't want to be an elder, but he was, he was being appointed as an elder by the elders. 
And he said, I don't want to be an elder. I, I mean, he was willing to, but he really didn't want to because he was so humble. But he was a very spiritual guy, but he was very humble. So that morning, he put up a sign. said, don't vote for Marshall. <laughs> and someone on the board said, that's the kind of man you want on the board who in humility realizes that as far as perfection goes, none of us are perfect to be spiritual leaders. But the reason why I think this is here is because, again, let's go back to their time, their context, their background. Being an elder or being a pastor wasn't a real alluring position. It wasn't a great lucrative position either. And it's the idea that if you become an elder, the world outside which hates you, the world outside which thinks Christians are renegades, the world outside does not like your message because you are going against their pagan gods. They don't like you. And you will indeed suffer persecution. That's what Paul says. All who live godly for Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So instead of saying you got to be gung-ho in campaign, it's the idea, look, if this is ever presented to you, you ever have an opportunity, don't look at this as, oh, no. Look at this as a thing to be reached out for. That's what the word aspire means here. It means to, to reach out, stretch out. And he goes on to say, and I think we see more of that. He says, it is a fine work he desires to do. Now, I want to look at the word fine. This is the Greek word kalos, and we've seen the Greek word kalos for good in our sections of, of Timothy and, and even in our theme, fighting the good fight in the church. What does the word good mean there? Well, the word is kalos, and it means it's inherently good. It's honorable, it's noble, it's excellent. And we said that when fighting the good fight in the church doesn't mean it's a bad fight that we're literally fighting or pugnacious. It means that this is a good thing. This is a noble fight. This is a, 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 an honorable thing. And so he's saying here that, look, don't, look, don't disdain the position of an elder but rather look at it as an honorable and noble and an excellent position, especially when you're thinking about you're, you're serving God and you're serving the congregation for the Lord. So it is met with aspiration or so it should be. Now the next thing, the next word I want to look at, we'll just backtrack just a hair says, it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. Well, are we becoming an elder or are we becoming an overseer? Yes. These are synonyms of one another. And we did speak of this quickly in, back in our previous discussion, biblical perspectives of elders. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to Titus. Chapter 1. And in Titus chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 7 first. 
We see the word that's used here, overseer. Uh, it's it's a, a very good translation. The Greek word is episkopos. It means to look over or oversee, overseer. And it starts to give these same qualifications in the book of Titus. So, so in other words, uh, he gives qualifications to Timothy. Timothy, you're there. You're in Ephesus. One of the things you've got to make sure of is that the eldership fulfills these qualifications. Titus, there's a problem in Crete. You go down there. You straighten that church out. You get first things done first, which is to appoint elders. Go back to verse 5. He says in verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order, medical term, what remains and, and appoint elders, presbuteros. And then in verse 7, he gives their qualifications, but he calls them overseers. In fact, the term overseer is sort of a qualification. It's a function of what the elders do. So, uh, we don't get hung up on that. It's very clear that these two are synonymous. So this is what an overseer does. So he, he looks over things. But Paul's more concerned about spiritual oversight, particularly of the person himself. Hence, we have this comprehensive list of all of the comp qualifications. Now, the first one is, as you're looking here in 1 Timothy... The first one is, an overseer then must be above reproach. Now, we've already looked at the word must. It's necessary. And I love this term, in a sense, because it pretty well covers everything. Some translations translate it as blameless. I can understand that. But I think reproach is actually pretty good. We must be above reproach. If you're above reproach, in a sense, you've, you're going to have all of these. The word for reproach, it means not to lay hold of. What that means is that God and others cannot lay hold of something in your life and say, oh, you shouldn't be an elder. Or particularly, there shouldn't be anything in your life that they can grab a hold of and say, you've offended me and you've never made this right. Because as I said, not always are we as elders perfect. And we're talking about smaller things. Um, if, if you offend God, which we do, and I'm going to say it daily, we need to be confessing our sin to God. That should be something done by all of us, including and especially elders. But what if we offend others? Well, then we need to make that right as well. And you think even of people on the outside. What if we offend someone on the outside? I almost think especially we should make that right. We had an elder years ago, a precious brother, very spiritual. He was a school teacher. And he taught the teenagers. And he had a teenager challenge him physically one day. Now, George is a big man. George play, played for the University of Wyoming. Tight end, 
for the University of Wyoming. Actually played with a couple of players that went on to go play in professionally. Well, he took the young man in the back room and closed the door. Now, to his credit, he didn't touch the young man. To his credit, he threw a chair across the room. The young man cowered. And we could debate all day whether that young man needed that lesson or not. And sometimes I would even think young men do need that. When they challenge, especially an authority or even a parent, you know, somewhere along the line, if they don't learn the lesson now, they're going to learn it in a very, very harsh way. But George came back in tears to the elder board. And he said, I think I should resign I've done this, this is what I've done. Now, I never touched the boy, and I've even went back and apologized to the boy. And he asked for our forgiveness, and the board was unanimous in seeing such a humble attitude, him having made it right, that that was fine that he stayed on the elder board. Of course, you know, this wouldn't be repeated or anything like that, but it just... What I'm trying to say here is is that it doesn't necessarily mean perfection, but it means there's nothing that God or man can lay hold of you upon and say, you've offended me and you've never made it right. It is talked of and spoken of in Titus. Titus chapter 1, verse 6, you don't have to turn there, but I will turn to Titus every now and then to show you how these are in the same thing. In fact, Titus says, namely, if a man is above reproach, and then he says the husband of one wife. But this idea of reproach, Paul does use a different word. And, and the word means not brought up on charges, okay? That's what it means. It means that, that again, you've made everything right that needed to be right. Now, if George were to continue with anger, be an angry man, then he would, according to the qualifications, have to be dismissed. In fact, if there is an angry man who cannot control his temper, who among us doesn't lose their temper from time to time, but if there is an angry man who cannot lose, who always loses his temper, cannot control it, he would not be qualified to be an elder. We knew of one such individual. The individual was involved in athletics, even in the college level, but couldn't overcome his anger. In fact, he even lost his scholarship in college because of his anger. And he had come to church, professed to be a believer, I have no reason to doubt that, but he still had his anger with him. And, of course, such a man would not have been brought up to be an elder. We must be above reproach, and that's every area. All the areas that we're going to talk about, we have to be above reproach, inside the church and outside, spiritually, and then even individually. This is what the word means. Um, it's interesting in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 
Here's a very practical thing, and he's speaking to the entire church. He says, prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. What are you talking about, Paul? But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. There's a practical example of what Paul was talking about, as well as any character flaw. And then again, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Timothy is exhorted to keep the commandment of God without stain and reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, these are the things that he was to teach to the congregation. So we are all to be above reproach. We're not all perfect, and in those cases where we're not, we need to make it right. Now, if you find yourself always making it right, that could be a real problem. But this is the idea of above reproach. And then the next phrase is, the husband of one wife. Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? Well, it's not necessarily simple. There are a myriad of interpretations. What did Paul mean when he said that an elder must be the husband of one wife? Let me also say that looking at it in the Greek, it could also be translated a one-woman man, okay? A one-woman man. Mios, gunaikos, andra. A one-woman man. So gunakos can refer to a wife or a woman, and it is translated separately like that in the New Testament. Well, one of the first views that is taken, and, and I don't know that this is particularly wrong, but some have suggested that this phrase opposes an elder being involved in polygamy. And you could understand that. But there is a little bit of a debate of whether the early church struggled with polygamy. Well, on the first token, not necessarily in a big way, but it was still there. And it was a problem, especially to some, not all, some in Jewish culture. Why? Because they proclaimed that the Old Testament condoned polygamy. Abraham, Jacob, David, Solomon, who had 700 wives and 300 concubines and still was called smartest man alive. Well, <clears throat> It seems to me that it, that it was a real possibility that there could have been some polygamy and some individuals who were making arguments about it. Now, the thing about polygamy in the, in the Bible, and maybe someday we'll have to do a study of that, um, is God never condoned it or God never approved of it, um, but he tolerated. In fact, when it came to kings, the qualification for kings in Deuteronomy was that they weren't supposed to have multiple wives because their wives would turn their hearts away from God. Enter Solomon. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. 
For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, deplorable gods, even the god Melech, to whom you would sacrifice your child to. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. So to kings, it was forbidden. And it seems to have been tolerated. And so because of that toleration, um, there were there, and, and even to this day, you have people who are still arguing for polygamy. You have religions that believe in polygamy. And even though the law says they can't, perhaps they still do. Well, anyway, we, we do see that it was an issue. The Jewish encyclopedia said there are many indications in the mission, uh, Mishnah that monogamy, one marriage, one wife, was the rule and polygamy the exception. And there was exceptions there. And if they didn't have that, what about the Greek culture? Well, the Greek culture was just full of mistresses and temple prostitutes. Of course, again, we would say absolutely no way should be, you know, a qualification for an elder if he violates any of that. The idea would be that in the Greek mind was that his wife was for children and his mistress was for pleasure. That was the thinking. That was the thought. And then talk about the temple prostitutes, how one could have oneness with their God through the temple prostitute. So if, if this is what Paul meant, there would certainly be an occasion for it. Um, some argue that that wasn't the case, and there are other views. The second view, the first view is polygamy. The second view would be divorce and remarriage. This is taking the idea of one marriage and one marriage only. That's what it means, a husband of one wife. And so there, in many cases, and in some cases, there was no wiggle room. Now, traditionally, this has been a phrase that has been taken to mean that an elder must not be divorced and remarried. Now, let me make a qualification. We do know that in the Bible, there are three exceptions to remarriage, and which would also then assume divorce. The first one is immorality. Matthew 19, 9 says this, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And so that would be, we believe, one of the exceptions. That's what John Ward believed, the first pastor of this church, the church is held to. That's what John MacArthur believes. The second is desertion. If two individuals are unbelievers and one believer gets saved in that marriage, then what? Well, if the unbeliever is willing to stay with the believer, great. And maybe they'll even become a believer. But 1 Corinthians 7.15 says, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called to peace. 
The third possibility for remarriage would be the death of a spouse. And really, we wouldn't have a problem with that, but there are some people that have a problem with that, that say you shouldn't be remarried under any circumstance. In fact, in fact, one of the second century views was that you should only have one marriage no matter what, even if your spouse dies. Clement of Alexandria, Hermas and Ellicott, others believe that, have taken it to that. But the idea with divorce would be, here's, a, here's one who couldn't get along with his wife, and I, you know, there's all, you know, please, I know, there's all kinds of problems, uh, you know, with marriages and all of that, but, but by the way, if you were ever to come to me about, say, can I have a divorce, I would show you what scripture says, and if it wasn't any of these exceptions, then I would say no. You say, well, what about if we're not compatible? The Bible doesn't say that. You work on being compatible, you know, what if, you know, what if this, what if that? Well, I, I, would, I would bring them to the scripture. Um, but there are times when I've talked to believers when their spouse not only cheated on them, but lived in a life of adultery while they were, while they were married. And even though we would say, yes, there is an exception, you wouldn't have to divorce your spouse for that. And in many times, that's what we would want to do is encourage and restore the marriage. We would want to restore the marriage. And we've actually seen that happen in some cases. We've seen that absolutely not happen in, in some cases as well. But the idea is, is that, okay, so if we interview a divorced man to be an elder, I've got to ask him a host of questions. And, and this church has always maintained that, no, we, we, you know, they can serve the Lord. They could do a lot of things. We're not putting them out or, or, you know, excommunicating them. We understand life. We all sin as believers. But they can't be an elder. That's, that, that's it. And, you know, we've, we've kind of looked into that as elders. We've talked about that because... You know, maybe this isn't what Paul means here. Uh, we've, we've done a little research, talked to some other very good godly churches, and we have decided to just kind of leave that as it is. And again, I, I understand, and sometimes it's not even the individual's fault. It's the other individual's fault. Well, I guess in every case it's the other individual's fault, isn't it? <laughs> but I mean, uh, biblically speaking. So... It could be that, but, but there are those who have a problem with remarriage, and when they say, when it says the husband of one wife, that's what they mean, and if your wife dies and you are a widower, you can't remarry, or, or you can remarry, and it's not sin, but you can't be an elder. I guess I struggle with that because you think of the kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament, you know, where when a wife's husband died that the brother was to become the kinsman redeemer christ is the kinsman redeemer so i i struggle with that but anyway that's the second view the third view is 
that they must be married. This means you must be married. After all, we see the word must in there. And you, if you're the husband of one wife, you have to be married. So you must be married. But, but there really are some problems with that. First of all, what about Paul? We don't know for sure if he was ever married. Might not have been. I know in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, I wish all men were even as I am myself. And it was in the context of celibacy. Some say he had to be married because he couldn't have been a Pharisee without being married. But who knows? I mean, he really, he also speaks of celibacy as a good thing. Why? Only if it's a gift. Okay? Only if it's by the Lord. Only if you just don't have a desire to be married. If you, you know... It's a good thing. Why? Because you can devote more of your time to the Lord. That's what celibacy is. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But if one who is married one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his life, and his interests are divided. Now, that's not sin, okay? There's nothing wrong with it, but it's true. It's true. And if you don't have the gift of celibacy, then that's the idea where you're trying to be a celibate, but you're burning with passion. Says the woman who is unmarried and the virgin who is concerned about the things of the Lord, she may be holy both in body and spirit. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. So he's saying, I'm just putting it out there. You know, if you're struggling because you don't have a desire and you, you're thinking maybe you, you're, you're abnormal or you're weird, Paul's saying, no, that's a good thing. The only thing is, though, when it comes to a man, it'd be kind of odd if he's saying you could serve the Lord in a greater way, but if you're not married because you're a celibate, you can't be an elder. That just would be, that just doesn't really seem to fit together. We also have Timothy. Now, I know it doesn't say specifically one way or the other, but there's no evidence that he was married. And think about it. So in Paul's second missionary journey, after Timothy was saved, a few years later after being saved, Paul comes by, likes this guy Timothy, wants to have Timothy go with him. He's in his probably late teens, 18, 19, maybe early 20s. Maybe he's married doesn't say that. You almost think, you know, maybe you didn't have time to get married. So he joins Paul's ministry, and he's with Paul continuously till Paul dies. You know, you're thinking, well, if he had a wife, when did he ever minister to his wife? Don't know for sure, but I'm not the only one who says that. One says, there's no indication that Timothy had a wife, yet he functioned as a pastor in many ways, as he was sent to various churches to do the work of a pastor teacher. Now, I understand the thinking of those who hold to that view. 
thinking that you have a pastor, he's a man, he may be teaching women, he's teaching, maybe teaching in, involved in, in youth ministry, whatever. It just opened for temptation. It's just not a good thing. I get that. But that's not what this is saying. This is not saying, I mean, that may be wise. That may be a trustworthy saying. But it's not what this is saying. It's not a disqualification. Jesus himself would have been disqualified, would he not? Let me give just two arguments from the text. The first one is, if you're going to go down that road, and that's the way you're going to interpret the Bible, and by the way, you can't interpret the Bible because you think this is good if it were this way, therefore I'm going to make this verse say that. You can't do that. That's, not, that's the wrong way. That's the tail wagging the dog. That's not how you interpret it. It's what the Bible says, and that's the end of it. But if you're to interpret it this way, that it's saying you must, this means you must be married, what about when you go to Titus chapter 1, verse 6? It says, the husband of wife having children who believe. Couldn't you, with that same hermeneutics, go, not only must you be married to be an elder, but you have to have children to be an elder. I mean, they, they wouldn't go down that road, but I'm thinking that's the way it is. So, I, I don't agree with that. But here's a strong one. The strong one is, if Paul's point was that elders must be married then the word one in there is meaningless, right? I mean, why didn't Paul just say, you must be married? Husband of a wife. But when you put the word one in it, it means something. There's a category. So the word one really clarifies it. Let me read from S. Lewis Johnson, who, who uh, many of us know of him. He's going on to be with the Lord. He actually came and taught at this church many, many years ago. That's Lewis Johnson. He was the fellow who knew more Greek the day he was saved than I have known in all of my entire ministry. He was a Greek student and then got saved and picked up the Greek New Testament and began to read it. This is what he says. The little word one becomes meaningless by that interpretation. Why not just say the husband of a wife or married, but the husband of one wife? That doesn't seem to be a very good way to say that a person should be married. Husband of a wife? Yes, but the little word one has no meaning by that interpretation, so we must abandon it. And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you put, it, it, when you put the word one in there, it makes it a different thought, a different category. The Bible teacher Hendrickson writes, this cannot mean that an overseer or elder must be a married man. And by the way, it's almost a moot point because almost in every situation, he is a married man, unless he's a widower. You know, I mean, I mean, it, we're talking about it. We're, we're, we're making a doctrine out of an exception here that's, that's hardly ever seen. This cannot mean that an overseer or elder must be a married man. Rather, it is assumed that he is married, as was generally the case. And it is stipulated that in this marital relationship, he must be an example to others of faithfulness. 
to his one and only marriage partner. That makes sense. But the view does not. And the fourth view is a one-woman kind of a man. And we may chuckle at that, but that's what you can get out of this translation. Number one, that's literal, a one-woman man. And it doesn't have an article. So it's probably talking about a characteristic rather than a status. Okay, that's the kind of man he is, and I'll explain it. But first of all, let me read from John MacArthur. Not at all saying that just because John MacArthur says it and believes it, it's absolutely true. But it's not just John MacArthur, it is others. And I, I think we do well when we read others, read others who have dedicated their life to studying these meanings, maybe even put more time in it than I put into it. We do well. Charles Spurgeon says, the man who does not read other men will not himself be read by men. John MacArthur said, the phrase one woman man doesn't refer to a marital status at all. Paul is giving moral qualifications for spiritual leadership. Not outlining what an elder's social status or external condition is to be. One woman man speaks of the man's character, the state of his heart. If he is married, he is to be devoted solely to his wife. Whether or not he is married, he is not a ladies' man, a flirt. Another one says, Paul's point in 1 Timothy 3.2 is not that a man must be married, but that if he is, then he must meet the requirements of this passage and he must manage his own household well. Literally, the Greek text says a one-woman man. In other words, a man who has eyes only for his own wife. And oh no, isn't that good? Isn't that beautiful? And isn't that the way it ought to be? He must be a man who is faithful to his own wife. And then John MacArthur again, a one woman man is one totally devoted to his wife, maintaining singular devotion, affection, and sexual purity in both thought and deed. And that starts to make a lot of sense. Now, when you look at this in the Greek, it doesn't have an article. And, and the majority of time, when something doesn't have an article, the article being the, it would be just a, but not the, it refers to a quality or a characteristic. And so grammatically, you could say that's, that's exactly what he's talking about. He wants an elder to be a one-woman kind of a man. And by the way, in conclusion to that, the one-woman kind of man view appears to be not only supported contextually, but grammatically. And it could be argued that this view covers most of the other interpretations, right? If you are a one-woman kind of a man, you will not be involved in polygamy. If you are a one-woman kind of man, you will not be in an illicit relationship. And if you are a one-woman man, you will not be a part of a divorce that doesn't have 
biblical, um, you know, the, the, the exception to it. And if you are a one-woman kind of man, you are not going to be an unloving husband. Now we're getting to the nitty-gritty. Okay, so, okay, we're not a polygamist, you know, not in an illicit affair, not divorced, but you still have to love your wife and not as a flirt. You better not be flirting around with all of the women here and be an elder. You better not be doing that at all. But you cannot be doing that as an elder. And so, in order to be a one-woman kind of man, an elder does not succumb to immorality in any sense. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3, Speaking to all, but we're applying it to the elder, but speaking to all, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints, let alone the elder. You must not succumb to be an unloving husband. If you have to be an example, especially to younger couples. I have to admit, Shane and Joanne came into church holding hands today. And I thought, how, how cool is that? And I thought, see, that's, that's kind of the example that we're to be. But beyond that, that's small fry. Jesus instructs us in Ephesians, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So men, we've got a lot of work to do so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. It's about spiritually. We, our wives are our first ministry, even if we're elders, for Christ, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory. She has no glory. It's the glory that he's given her. Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, metaphorically. But that she would be holy and blameless, presented to the Son by the Father. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. So we've got to be an example and be loving. We are not to be flirts. We could be friendly, but it's a godly friendliness, right? You know, not, not flirtatious. And then here's one that I'm going to leave us with today. We've all heard the old cliche, you can't live with them and you can't live without them. And I suppose there's a sense in which we can chuckle. But I found out that that didn't come from church. That didn't come from Paul. That came from the pagan world, the world of which Paul was writing about, saying, you must be the husband of one wife, or better still, you must be a one-woman kind of man. Can't live with them, can't live without them. Men, that's not something to joke about. Not 
if we are to be a testimony to this world. We'll look at the other qualifications, but I wanted to take some time and look at, I, I do think that the view fourth is, is the better view, one woman kind of a man. I also see it covering, covering some of these others, um, and it's not to offend anyone, but again, you know, someone may have been divorced, and, and you can be used in the church. You can even, you know, you can even teach in the church. Um, now, when I say that, I'm not talking about, okay, you're in the church, you're married, and now you're going to go get a divorce. That's not good. I'm not saying that at all. You, you may have a discussion with the pastor or the elders in all seriousness. But, water under the dam, you come here, you've had a divorce, does that mean you're second rate? No. That means that we all receive Christ's forgiveness and we can all be used. You just can't be an elder, that's all. Well, with that, let me close this in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for your word. Lord, help us all to be above reproach. Help us elders to be above reproach. Help me to be above reproach. And may we be an example, even in our marriages, as we are devoted to our wives. A single devotion. Make sure, Lord, we are one woman kind of a man to our wives. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.